Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow, the leaders of Japan, China, and South Korea will meet together for the first time in more than two years to talk about economic cooperation. Will North Korea also be on their agenda? That conversation coming up. Now, just a few months ago, Americans were worried about the chances of North Korea striking the West Coast with a ballistic missile, while President Trump was warning the regime via Twitter that threatening the U.S. would have drastic consequences. Now, President Trump is planning a potential meeting at the White House with Kim Jong-un. How did we get here? Coming up, UConn history professor Alexis Dudden will join us with analysis of the Korean Peninsula. Now, were you watching the news when South Korea's president met with North Korea's Kim Jong-un on the demilitarized zone? What do you make of these developments? And do you believe Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize? Seriously. We'll have more on that coming up, but we want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at wmpr.org, and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our first guest uh, for the hour is Nahal Tusi, a foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Nahal, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I mentioned, Nahal, a few months ago we were discussing the prospect of a a nuclear war. Uh, Now South Korea's President Moon and uh, North Korea's Kim have met. Now we're reading about reports of this summit between the U.S. and North Korea maybe happening in the next few weeks. How did we get here, Nahal? Uh, Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, If you talk to supporters of President Trump, uh, they will say that uh, it's largely because of the a pressure campaign that the U.S. has led internationally that includes putting a lot of sanctions and uh, cutting off diplomatic ties and other things with the North Koreans in order to push them to come to the table, as well as some pretty tough talk from the U.S. president who's, you know, promised to rain fire and fury down on North Korea. Um, but there are others who say that, look, you know, part of the reason that, uh, that Kim Jong-un is willing to talk now is because he has his nuclear program. It's set. Uh, it's probably what he feels he needs for now, and he thinks he's ready to um, help his economy, perhaps. And so that's one reason he's ready to come to the table, and he wants to be kind of validated as someone who the U.S. president is willing to meet with. Uh, So, you know, the reality is it could be somewhere in between. Uh, I mentioned this meeting, I believe, April 27th between Kim Jong-un and uh, South Korea's Moon Jae-in. It was being described as historic. Why was that meeting uh, such a moment in history? Well, for one thing, Kim Jong-un is even more reclusive than some of his his uh, ancestral predecessors who led the country. Uh, so uh, he's only he'd only prior to that meeting met only with a Chinese leader. I mean, he barely even left his own country. So the fact that he was willing to cross the line over at the DMZ and talk to the South Korean leader uh, was really kind of amazing. And it signaled that um, he is looking for something more than simply being um, an outcast with nuclear weapons. Uh, but, you know, again, like this, the North Koreans make a lot of calculations. They're, they're, very smart on a lot of levels. Uh, And so, you know, he's probably thinking very strategically, and he thinks that talking to South Koreans uh, could benefit him in some way. What did those two leaders promise that they would work towards? Um, I think, you know, there was this notion of, like, a denuclearized Korean peninsula, but I would not 
um, you know, we got to be really careful in terms of determining what that means because uh, the way that the North Koreans define denuclearization uh, is really uh, not necessarily the same as the way that the U.S. might define it. So, you know, the South Koreans are under America's nuclear umbrella, and so the North Koreans will want to see American troops leave the peninsula. Um, I, I would say that, you know, this particular meeting between the South Korean leader and the North Korean leader and the upcoming summit uh, between President Trump and the North Korean leader, they're just the beginning of what could prove a very long and possibly very frustrating and ultimately futile process. And what's in it for South Korea's uh, leader? I understand his term is almost up. Um, you know, I mean, politically, it, it certainly can help him if you can say that he brought some level of uh, peace to the peninsula. Uh, but it's it's really tricky because South Koreans have kind of a, um, you know, at the same time, they, they very much fear the North Koreans because they're so close. And North Korea doesn't even need nuclear weapons to cause devastation in South Korea. It has plenty of conventional weapons. So if he can say, look, I have you know, some diplomatic deal and we brought some peace for now, um, that could be a huge boon. At the same time, there are a lot of people in South Korea who really want um, him to take a tough stand with the North Koreans because they feel like there's a lot of terrible things happening in North Korea and that they shouldn't be allowed to get away with what they're doing. On the phone with me is Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. As we get an update uh, about the easing of hostilities on the Korean Peninsula and this upcoming meeting, possibly, between President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un, do you think that's a good idea? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, Nahal, uh, what do we know so far about this possible meeting? Uh, between Trump and Kim? Uh, well, we believe it's going to happen either in late May or early June. Uh, we know that uh, President Trump uh, wants definitely to talk to uh, Kim about getting rid of his nuclear weapons, um, but we're also reported, it's reported that he's going to talk to Kim about re- returning uh, some Japanese abductees that his country abducted decades ago in some cases. Um, there are people uh, in the human rights community who are urging Trump to raise the issue of human rights in North Korea during this meeting with Kim. Um, and, you know, it also, I'm sure, in terms of the U.S. military presence in the region, Kim will, will want to discuss that. Will they lead to any decisions or come to any agreement? I, I very much doubt it. Uh, but a lot uh, of the agenda could be shaped by this initial meeting. Now, Nahal, you just recently wrote a piece for Politico about how uh, President Trump has muted his attacks on North Korea's, as he's called it, depraved policies. Uh, You mentioned human rights abuses. That's not something we've heard about in the last two weeks, especially. Remind us uh, some of the practices that uh, the Kim regime uh, conducts on its own people. Oh, wow. I mean, the United Nations says that uh, the North Korean regime is a state that has basically no parallel in the rest of the world when it comes to human rights violations. We're talking about a country where tens of thousands of people are in penal colonies and uh, forced labor camps, uh, numerous, numerous political prisoners, uh, people who are in prison just for uh, practicing a particular religion. Um, you know, the country practices a collective punishment. So if, if you, for instance, are accused of crime, your entire family um, might get punished. Uh, people aren't allowed to leave the country. It's it's really a totalitarian state. And, you know, for months and months and months, Trump has highlighted this. I mean, he's called the country depraved. He said that Kim was a madman who doesn't mind starving his own people. Um, but in the last few weeks, 
since there's been this agreement to have a conversation with Kim face-to-face, Trump has suddenly been much quieter about these violations in North Korea. And in fact, he even said that Kim um, has been very honorable uh, so far in terms of the talks. So that was really, really quite a striking statement coming from a president who has repeatedly bashed the North Koreans over human rights. Um, and just to be, you know, the other thing that's interesting is Trump normally doesn't make human rights a key part of his foreign policy, with the exception of a few countries that he just doesn't like. So he's willing to trash Iran and North Korea and Venezuela on human rights, but he won't really criticize the Saudis or Turkey or other U.S. allies uh, on the issue, even if many of the things that they're doing are the same. There was also that uh, highly publicized case of that American, uh, a young man named Otto Warmbier, um, who was... Uh, held uh, by North Korea, returned to the U.S. in a vegetative state. He died soon after. Uh, Anything that happened uh, because of that particular case? Well, we know that President Trump was really angry uh, about the death of Otto Warmbier. He was uh, furious about it. That's one of the reasons that he um, has highlighted the North Korean human rights violations uh, so often. Uh, Otto Warmbier's parents are actually suing the North Korean government right now, and they say they're going to try to put a spotlight on the human rights atrocities there. Um, But, you know, it's unclear uh, whether um, Trump, you know, while he will probably try to see if Kim will release some of the additional Americans that are in North Korea's custody right now, there's at least three of them, um, you know, people really hope that that's not the only thing that Trump brings up in terms of human rights. Uh, They want Trump to talk about the human rights of North Koreans who are very much suffering under this regime. And before we let you go, Nahal, we mentioned this uh, possible upcoming meeting between President Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. There is coming up later on the show, we're going to talk about uh, how Japan and uh, China view, again, this easing of hostilities. But this summit between President Trump and South Korea's President Moon is coming up later this month. Uh, how worried, again, is South Korea that the U.S., uh, you know, President Trump has mentioned they want to actually uh, remove the troops that have been there for years. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, you know, the South Korean leader is going to be in town in Washington uh, trying to make sure that Trump doesn't give away the store. He is very keen on making sure that the U.S. um, has a presence on the peninsula. He feels like it's an important uh, deterrence when it comes to North Korean aggression. Um, But, you know, he, he also wants Uh, President Trump to additionally take into account some of South Korea's concerns. Um, There's a sense in some quarters that Trump may be able to convince Kim to give up his pursuit of intercontinental ballistic missiles. That basically removes a threat to the United States when it comes to North Korea's nuclear program. But South Koreans and the Japanese also want Trump to make sure that he asks him to get rid of his regular missiles because they are the ones that are in the, um, the, the way when it comes to those missiles. Those missiles can reach South Korea and Japan. So those are just some of the examples of some of the things that they want Trump to bear in mind, that it's not just about America's security, but also about the security of America's allies in Asia. And Nahal, what will you be watching in the coming weeks? Uh, what do you think the odds are that North Korea and U.S. will meet? I think the odds are pretty good, actually, um, much better than they were a few weeks back. I mean, when it was first announced, I was like, no way. Uh, But now it seems like it actually might happen. Um, But one thing I would say is, you know, a lot could end up depending on how President Trump deals with the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Today, he's going to be making an announcement on America's uh, future in that particular deal. Um, And if the North Koreans 
if see the U.S. pull out of the deal, that might make them a bit more skittish about entering any kind of an agreement with with Trump. And that being said, you know, Kim might still be willing to meet with Trump because he really wants to be seen on the world stage as someone that the American president will meet with. Um, but will he actually come to a nuclear deal with Trump after if Trump ends up leaving the nuclear deal struck with Iran? That's that's a little bit more unclear. Uh, good point to make, Nahal Tusi, again, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. We thank you for your analysis. Thanks for having me. We're going to tweet out links to her recent political stories at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we heard about the future meetings President Trump is expected to hold with both the leaders of South and North Korea. Will these summits help bring an official end to the Korean War? And what about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula? Does that mean different things to North Korea and the U.S.? We're going to talk more about that coming up, and we want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the easing of hostilities between North and South Korea. In April, South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un met for a historic summit along the line that divides the two countries. Both leaders promised a denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and an official end to the Korean War. Now, later this month, President Trump will meet South Korea's Moon at the White House. And as we heard, plans are in the works for a summit between Trump and North Korea's Kim. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, more on what led to this detente and the implications for the future. I want to welcome back to the show Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Alexis, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for including me. And joining us on the phone is Harry Kazianis, Director of Defense Studies at the Center for the National Interest, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. Harry, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. So, Alexis, I'll start with you. Uh, we were talking with the political reporter earlier about uh, the conditions or what led to the summit between uh, uh, Kim and Moon uh, late last uh, month. Uh, what do you think uh, aligned to have these two leaders meet in the DMZ? Well, I think as the woman who just spoke, Nahal Tusi, mentioned, uh, it's it's a combination of factors. But I think we can't downplay the feeling generated by the Olympics. And that's, a, that's got a healthy dose of chance in it, right? Um, you know, the South Koreans had applied for these Olympics several times and failed over the years. They scored these Olympics about six years ago. And here we are, 2018, at the brink of nuclear war. And uh, President Moon, by surprise election, becomes the president of South Korea last May and says right away that he's going to invite the North Koreans to the Olympics and that they can take the overland route should they wish. That is to say they don't have to fly to China, which is enormously expensive. So that set the tone. And there was all this sort of, oh, the North Koreans aren't going to come. They aren't going to come. And then in December 2017, Moon Jae-in said to ask President Trump, would he be willing to consider postponing the annual U.S.-South uh, Korean military exercises until after the Olympics. Now, these are sacrosanct. These are things that go on for, have been going on for decades uh, to train for readiness, et cetera. And President Trump agreed. And so the Olympics went ahead without the threat of some violent attack from the North, precisely because the North did participate. And it really, uh, you know, South Koreans at first protested the idea that there was going to be a joint team. But then the optics of it 
were as great in terms of generating a positive feeling as were the optics of the April 27th Panmunjom Declaration. Now, Harry, uh, you've uh, you've written and spoken uh, to the press on, on who you believe deserves the credit for this moment in time. You say it's President Trump. I do. And, you know, I think looking at all this, I, I think your, your other guest sort of sets the context up just perfectly. I think we have to remember where we were just back in, in November, December, even January. You know, the, the talk here in Washington was all about war with North Korea. We had a number of press reports. There was one that was very important that came out around January 6th in the Wall Street Journal that talked about a bloody nose strike on North Korea. And I can't tell you, I've never gotten so many press requests in my life asking if there was going to be nuclear war. That was a first for me in my career. But I think we have to look at the, the pressure the Trump administration has put on a number of different parties, whether it was the Chinese to enforce sanctions, which they're still not enforcing perfectly, but I think much more than they ever have in, in the recent past. I think pressure on North Korea, which I think has been the, the most really we've, we've put in a number of years. And there's been reports actually out of South Korea's, you know, different press markets and whatnot, that they're actually going to run out of foreign exchange reserves, which I think is a very important point, because that essentially means North Korea is on the verge of bankruptcy. And then also pressure on South Korea, which is, which is very important as well. Um, I think the South Koreans are, are very eager to have some sort of agreement with the North Koreans. We have to remember President Moon is under election um, in his party is actually under election in the next couple of months. So I think when you put all of these things together, the big driving factor out of all of this is President Trump. And I know a lot of people have their issues with the president. I have a couple as well. Um, do tell. But I, think, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think when you, when you look at everything on balance, he's the game changer in all of this. And the amount of pressure and things that he's done, I think, makes him very, very as a, a good candidate to win really the Nobel Prize, because he's brought us back from the brink of nuclear war. And I think that is something that we should appreciate, irregardless of where you are in the political spectrum. Now, Alexis, did you want to respond this idea that President Trump should get the Nobel Peace Prize? Well, Nobel Prize is being highly political events. Uh, I think it's probably best to say that the potential peace treaty itself deserves the Nobel Peace Prize, which would therefore include everybody who's a signatory to it. And insofar as, yep, pressure certainly seems to be a factor, uh, Moon Jae-in's determination to bet his, uh, his career, his legacy, uh, you know, yes, there are democratic elections in South Korea, but it's important to note that President Moon uh, is allowed only one term. So the outcome of this doesn't determine his political uh, fate. Rather, it determines the fate of South Korea. So he would definitely factor into this. Um, I think everybody that I have spoken to is hesitant to even mention Kim Jong-un as a participant in a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, but at the same time, if we're talking about achieving a peace treaty to in, in lieu of the armistice that's standing, uh, we'll also have to include the Chinese in that. So it's going to be a multi-party effort regardless. Now, um, Harry, what do you make of this potential meeting between uh, President Trump and uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un? Um, we know that he is the, the, the king of propaganda. Is he just looking for that photo op but not willing to give up what the U.S. may ask? Well, I think history is really crying out for us to be very skeptical when it comes to all this. I think there will be a meeting. I think most likely, I know I've seen reports that Singapore, at least for the moment, might be the hot choice, but I think the, the preferred destination for everybody would be something along the DMZ. You know, so, so everybody sort of understands the stark realities of the situation. I think you probably see a meeting 
my own guesstimates, I have no inside knowledge, but probably sometime in early to mid-June. I think that makes sense for everybody. But I think we have to understand the long game of the North Koreans here. The North Koreans aren't exactly the most reputable people to negotiate or do business with. I've said to colleagues many times, it's more like trying to negotiate a deal with Lucifer. You know, Lucifer has a 100% track record of being dishonest and cheating and lying and doing whatever they want to do to survive. And we also have to ask ourselves, if the goal of the Trump administration is to get the North Koreans to get rid of their nuclear weapons, we have to remember the North Korean nuclear weapons program was built on the lives of probably hundreds of thousands of average North Koreans who starved and essentially gave up the resources to build those weapons. So the question is, what does Kim Jong-un want to give up those nuclear weapons? I, I can't see him just asking for a peace treaty, just asking for some sort of vague security guarantees. I think, to be honest, what, you, what he's going to want is probably at least $100 billion in economic aid. Uh, he's probably going to want security guarantees from the Chinese, perhaps even the extension of the Chinese you know, nuclear arsenal to protect North Korea in case of attack from the United States. So Kim Jong-un's wants and needs, so to speak, I think are going to be extraordinarily high. And this might actually be the reason why there has not been a, a Kim Trump announcement in terms of a date yet or, or a location. You know, we have to remember, President Trump was sort of talking about this late last week, that they had a date and everything set up, but it hasn't been announced. Why? That might be the reason. Mm. Uh, and our earlier guest uh, brought up the point that later uh, this afternoon, President Trump will make remarks on whether the U.S. will pull out of the Iran deal. I mean, that certainly uh, doesn't bode well for the messaging uh, that's sent to uh, South Korea and North Korea as they talk about denuclearization if the U.S. is going to pull out of this landmark deal. What's your response, Harry? Well, I have mixed emotions about the, the Iran deal. I, I think it's one of those great sort of foreign policy band-aids. It doesn't fundamentally solve the problem of Iran's nuclear ambitions. I think we have to remember that we have sort of a long-term problem when we look at the world and we look at countries who want nuclear weapons. The fundamental reality is nuclear weapons are really old technology. We detonated the first one in 1945. We fired the first long-range ICBM in 1957. Countries are going to get this stuff. And as a, a country and as a people, we have to figure out what our strategy is going to be. Are we going to go to war every time a country that we don't like has nuclear weapons? Are we going to engage in some sort of agreements that we, we might want to pull out of years later if we don't like the terms? And I think you, you can sort of lump Iran and North Korea into this problem. We haven't figured out a solution to it yet. And it has to be really a, a, a multi-administration sort of you know, policy, you know, th things that we did back in the Cold War that we don't do very well right now. Now, on the Iran deal, to be honest with you, the Iran deal has a lot of holes. The Iranians can leave it in 2025. They could start building nuclear weapons if they so choose. Also, the Iranians can build missile technology. I mean, they, they're very good at, at copying and, and sort of repurposing what the North Koreans have given them, and they have a long history of collaborating. So th these are, are, are multi-year, multi-decade challenges that I think the United States is going to have to look through, and there is no easy solution. This is where we live today. We're looking at what's happening on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, it's a historic meeting between uh, both leaders of South Korea and North Korea. This talk of denuclearization, uh, potential meetings uh, between uh, President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un. We want to hear from you. Uh, what do you make of all of these developments? Uh, it's hard to, to keep up, but you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to turn back to my guest in studio, Alexis Dudden. Could you respond to what Harry's saying about um, you know, the messaging uh, as the U.S. may be announcing today that they're done with the Iran deal. 
Sure. I actually think it's pretty important to disaggregate Iran and North Korea uh, for historical and also really strategic reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that he introduced 1945 to the conversation. North and South Korea came into being in the immediate wake of the United States' dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 10th at midnight in a basement at State Department in Washington, two American army officers drew a line through a National Geographic uh, map to create the southern and excuse me, the, the southern and northern occupation zones. So when we talk about why North Korea became a nuclear state, it begins at its inception as an entity on the planet. And moving forward, it became very clear to the North Korean leadership over time, decades of time, that the only way to stand up to its enemy, which is the United States in both legal and realistic terms, was to become a nuclear power in its own right. So yes, does it come at the expense of feeding its people? Absolutely. North Korea's uh, GDP is $12 billion. But the only reason we are paying attention to a country so impoverished, the annual, I mean, per person, per capita income is rivaling Afghanistan. The only reason we are caring about a poor state with a, a human rights track record that is highly negative is because they've become nuclear. So they figured it out. And we have been dealing with this problem publicly since the mid-1990s. The problem is the 1990s solution for the Korean Peninsula Economic Development Organization, which was going to exchange the uranium enrichment facilities for a light water reactor, uh, the United States failed, actually. We did not provide the promised capital, which infuriated the still untested, uh, arguably illegitimate regime of the current leader's father. So he went all back into the uranium enrichment program. And so it's really a give and take on who's created this mess. Uh, Harry, Harry, before we take a listener call, I wanted you to respond to Alexis. Sure. No, I, I think the good professor makes a lot of good points, and I, I don't disagree. I think one of the things that's that's very interesting this whole conversation is looking at sort of you know the United States did break some promises when we talk about agreements in the 1990s with the Clinton administration. You know, we had you know colleagues of mine in the Republican Party that you know were not very pleased with having to make a deal with the Kim family, and members of Congress were not very good at making sure promised aid came through, late oil deliveries. That's all important. I, I I think you have to put that on the table, and the United States does need to keep its word when it makes international agreements. I think there's something else that we need to bring in this conversation I think is very important. What if these talks fail or don't happen? Because I think that's important because I think there's a, more of a likelihood than not that that there, there's a possibility that they could not work out. And I think we have to look at what our sort of long-term solutions are. You know, there'll be a lot of people here in Washington clamoring for war, clamoring for, you know, regime change or attacking the Kim regime and taking out their weapons. I think the smart approach, more than anything else, is that we know how to contain rogue regimes that have weapons of mass destruction. We've done it to Russia and the Soviet Union during the Cold War very broadly, and I, I think there is a template there for what we can do. There's no reason to welcome the North Koreans into the international family of nations if they are going to have these type of weapons. There's going to be a trade-off for the North Koreans. Either they can give up these weapons or the, and be a part of the international system, or they choose not to. It doesn't mean war for us, though. Harry, you mentioned, um, before I head back to Alexis, you mentioned uh, people in Washington clamoring for war. Uh, the role of John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, in this conversation? 
I, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people have John Bolton a little bit confused. A lot of times people call him a, a neoconservative, somebody who wants to enact regime change. I, I think John Bolton is for a very tough U.S. military posture. I, I don't think he shrinks from the idea of using, you know, force when it is necessary. But I think President Trump is his own man here. And, I, and I'm sure he brought in John Bolton and explained to, to the good ambassador that, look, if you're going to be part of my team, it's going to be my way or the highway. And I, I think John Bolton has accepted that. And I think a lot of times, too, we look at some of the comments that people make on TV, and quite frankly, that they're paid to make on TV. I mean, John Bolton was a you know, paid Fox News contributor. And, you know, I'm sure he probably hyped his comments a little bit. But I, I don't see as Bolton as somebody who would want to itch to war. You know, you know, we can dissect his op-eds and other things where he's been very hawkish. But I think everybody understands the reality of what that would mean. A war with North Korea means millions of people would die. And I don't think anybody would jump into that very, very quickly. I think many of our listeners, Harry, remember uh, John Bolton's comments uh, and his support for the Iraq War. Uh, and that was troublesome, considering that it was based on on false intelligence. Uh, Alexis, go ahead. Yeah, and I think rather, and, and he still supports his decision. So rather than giving him more airtime, I think it's best to quote Senator Ed Markey from last week when he said that failed talks, a potential failure in talks between Trump and Kim cannot be a stepping stone or even a justification for a U.S. preventive first strike war against North Korea, because we really have to understand that war is not an option here. And it, Honestly, every time people use the word option, I beg to wonder what they're considering an option here is, because it is the decimation, as we just heard, of several million people. But it's also a radiological disaster. It's a collapse of the international economy. South Korea is the 11th largest economy in the world. If it is devastated, which North Korea would not waste a nuclear weapon on South Korea, that's where the conventional forces come in. As Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, has articulated very clearly, this isn't a question of who's going to win, uh, but it comes at the enormous cost of our ally, South Korea. So when we circle back to look at what President Moon is doing in his actions that some call weak, some call appeasing, um, and a sellout, it's, uh, he is definitely acting in his nation's interests. He's not acting on behalf of a defense contractor. He's not acting on behalf of some, you know, messianic pursuit. He is squarely looking at what the reality is. And the reality is he needs a new economic plan for his country. If you stand back to the so-called 30,000 view of the Korean peninsula, 30,000 foot view, South Korea is an island because it is disconnected from the continent by virtue of it not being able to transport goods, services, and people freely to China overland. So it's really important to consider what uh, President Moon said at the Panmunjom Declaration, which was that it was time for a new economic map. And he introduced this three-belt plan, which is that from the West Coast, both North and South Korea would engage over water with China. From the East Coast, it would engage both North and South Korea with Russia, potentially Japan, and that it would establish a modernized train line from Mokpo in the far south of South Korea up to the China border. It's all ready to go. There's just several feet, literally several feet, of the train link that it was taken out 
uh, when the United States did an about-face in our negotiations with North Korea by the neocons in 2002 and lifted the railroad that had already been completed out of the ground. And so to reestablish that train link allows South Korean companies, multinational corporations, to do business freely in this proposed new vision, which really is what the focus needs to shift to rather than away from nuclear devastation, but to how to develop the region progressively and peacefully and prosperously. Alexis Dudden is professor of history at UConn. Also with us on the phone, Harry Kazianis, director of defense studies at the Center for the National Interest, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. This is where we live. Today we're looking at what's happening on the Korean Peninsula and the U.S. role. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. David, you're on the show. Go ahead. Yeah, yes, hello. Uh, my name is David Keppel, and I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. I have a question about denuclearization. Uh, the U.S. can easily hit North Korea with nuclear weapons from elsewhere, that is, from bombers and, and even missile bases in the U.S. So what would it take to make a truly fair denuclearization offer to North Korea? Good question, David. Thanks for listening. I'll go to Harry first. Well, I, I think it depends on the goals of the Trump administration. I mean, right now the Trump administration wants a full, complete denuclearization. Uh, I presume that means all of North Korea's nuclear weapons, probably fissile material. That could actually mean, you know, the closing down of nu- all their nuclear reactors. There's also actually another component I think that gets missed, but it's in a lot of the joint declarations between the United States and Japan and some others. And that's the, that the United States wants the North Koreans to also give up their chemical weapons, They've got about, the estimates vary, but as much as 5,000 tons of chemical weapons and potentially a, a biological weapons program, another pathway to kill a lot of different people. So what the United States is asking for is essentially the, 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 essentially the neutering of North Korea's military, which I'm not sure Kim Jong-un is really going to want. Now, you, you've got to ask yourself again, what is Kim going to want for doing all of this? I think his asks are going to be extraordinarily high. I'm not sure in terms of Washington's political climate that we're going to be able to meet all those asks. Um, it's really going to be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks how this plays out. And also, I think your caller maybe was alluding to this a little bit, although I might have, I might have misheard him a little bit. You know, would Kim ask for the United States to give up its nuclear weapons or, or make some sort of request that, you know, that we just can't accommodate? Uh, the North Koreans have made comments like that before. You know, we'll give up our nukes if you give up your nukes. And quite frankly, that's not going to happen. So this is all worth watching very carefully. And I think in the next couple of days, we're going to have a lot more answers to all of this. Alexis. Yeah, and I think it's really important to introduce the chemical and biological weapons to the conversation. Um, To me, what's been most uh, astonishing, actually, is the lack of North Korean demand for removal of U.S. troops at the moment. And that's something that, you know, for years we've heard as a sort of quid pro quo. Um, they, in, it, there was the most recent time that this was kind of interesting was July 2016 um, when Kim Jong-un made an offer to the Obama administration for talks about denuclearization. And Obama and then now imprisoned President Park Geun-hye of South Korea dismissed out of hand that, that North Korea was just simply going to ask for the total withdrawal of uh, U.S. forces Korea. And in fact, what Kim had said was that the 
the U.S. troops who have control over the use of weapons, nuclear weapons, on the Korean peninsula should leave South Korea. And what's really important, and it may be a word game, but it's an important word game, because the only American who has control over the use of nuclear weapons on the Korean peninsula is President Trump now. It was President Obama at the time. It's now President Trump. Because even Vincent Brooks, commander of U.S. Forces Korea, has to answer to his commander-in-chief, and that's the president of the United States. So yes, absolutely, what North Korea is going to ask for is going to be enormously expensive, but then that circles us to Japan because it's it's a security agreement from the United States as well as security backup from China that North Korea is seeking. It's not, you know, it's not an... It's not a surprise that Kim Jong-un and President Xi Jinping are meeting uh, in China right now for that security guarantee. But Japan had, in 1965, and I think we may be talking about this later too, Japan had paid um, money to atone. It's not legal reparations, but money to atone for its devastation during its colonization of, of, of Korea during the first half of the 20th century. The problem is, in 1965, they only paid to South Korea. So North Korea never got normalized, recognized, or that infusion of cash to industrialize its economy. And that's what North Korea is going to seek from Japan, which in today's dollars could be anywhere from 10 to 20 billion. um, And that would be the first infusion of cash to this conversation. Harry, uh, should the U.S. remove troops in South Korea? Not not immediately. I know there's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of speculation about, you know, White House plans and the White House asking the Pentagon to draw up plans. I think it's extremely premature to, to even have any sort of conversations about that. I know South Korean colleagues in Seoul, various diplomats there, that are very, very worried about any sort of talk about that, uh, because it sets up sort of an expectation that that's possible. You know, I, I think there's a lot of talk being thrown around right now about, you know, potential grand bargains. If Kim does this, we'll do that. I, I think we're a long way for that. I, I think really what needs to happen more than anything else is there needs to be some, some trust built between both sides. You know, we, we have to remember, these, the United States and North Korea have had on and off negotiations for years. That doesn't really allow diplomats or, or people-to-people exchanges and other things to really be built up. And also through change of administration, people, don't, you know, people are walking in and out. It's very hard to sort of build those links up. So I think those things really are going to need to happen first. One other comment I want to make to jump off the, the good professor's point is this idea of sort of you know, North Korea's economy. I think something that we have to, to really think about here is a lot of different investors in South Korea and Japan and really all parts of the world are going to want to get into sort of this this opening of North Korea if it happens. Because we have to remember that the economics of North Korea, it could be one of the best investments in, in, in a lot of years. I mean, the North Koreans have potentially as much as $10 trillion in minerals, and I've heard talk about possible oil deposits and other things. So people are going to be very eager to sort of get in on the action when it comes to North Korea. So if there is sort of an opening up, and I think we're very far away from that, but if there is, there's going to be a lot of people rushing to sort of get in on what could be a North Korean gold rush. So I think it's worth keeping in mind. We're going to have to leave it there. Harry Kazianis, Director of Defense Studies at the Center for the National Interest, a D.C.-based think tank. Harry, thanks so much for coming on. 
Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, Northeast Asia includes not just North and South Korea, but also China and Japan. How are those countries viewing the easing of hostilities on the Korean Peninsula? And what's leading to increased tension between China and the U.S.? We're going to find out after the break. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up Thursday, the USDA has proposed new rules that would require food manufacturers to say whether their products contain genetically modified organisms or GMOs. On Thursday, what does it mean for food to be genetically modified and why should we care if it is? You can join the conversation. That's later this week. Now, today we've been focusing on the Korean Peninsula. In studio with me is Alexis Dudden, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. I wanted to talk more about the perspectives from China and Japan as the these hostilities are easing, so to speak, between North and South Korea. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show, Alexis, that uh, tomorrow, actually, Japan, China, South Korea gathering for an economic summit. North Korea will be part of the conversation, we're assuming? Absolutely. And I think Japan is hoping, especially under the leadership of Prime Minister Abe, whose polls have plummeted into the high 20 percent range from a host of reasons, um, Japan wants to continue to use North Korea as the boogeyman in the room so that it can you know, create this Japan first, Japan hardline policy. And yet that goes against how China is viewing the potential easing of tensions. And China really uh, doesn't want a collapsed North Korea in any scenario. Um, and it's interesting speaking with colleagues in China and also Chinese colleagues here in the United States. I hear their remarks about North Korea sound a lot like South Koreans. You know, why are they doing this? This is totally unhelpful kind of line of thinking. Um, and so China just kind of wants North Korea to get with the program of creating a prosperous uh, Northeast Asia, which is very much in keeping with these economic plans. Uh, Japan stands to gain a lot from an economic plan that would be productive and progressive vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Korean Peninsula. But what it has to give up is this being the bad person in the room. And when I say that, I don't say that lightly because Japan has the capability to be the most helpful leader in the room insofar as it remains the open society, the most open society in Asia. It has incredible innovative possibility, incredible potential for economic development. It has the capital needed for uh, infrastructure investment, et cetera. But what has happened in the last six years under the administration of Abe Shinzo is that it's created itself as the completely unhelpful partner by dragging up history and making his weaponizing these history debates that are deeply counterproductive to the moment. And the problem is the minute any one of these really talismanic words appears that has everything to do with the first half of the 20th century and nothing to do with the present other than shoring up political bases at home today, it just drags down everything involved. And so what we can hope for is that the conversation remains on economic development, on the achievement in Panmunjom on April 27th. Noticeably, the Japanese government has really tried to pour water over that moment by refocusing everybody's attention on, well, look, you, you, know, you have to talk about the Japanese abductees. And yes, this is a terrible story from the 1970s and 80s. 
of uh, roughly 20 Japanese civilians kidnapped by the father, uh, kidnapped by agents of the father of the current leader of North Korea uh, in some very twisted B-rate movie plan that they were going to be spy trainer language coaches. And it's a really tragic story that successive Japanese governments failed to do anything about. Prime Minister Abe cut his teeth in 2002, making this his signature issue, and has ridden with this ever since. The problem is it falls on deaf ears to a lot of Asians, not just South Korea and China, who are still waiting for the Japanese government to atone as in terms of state responsibility for abducting millions of Asians during the first half of the 20th century. So we can just really hope that Japan could lead the moment by shifting and agreeing with South Korea and China that the possibilities for moving forward are on the table. And if Japan could see that, then it would be a remarkably productive moment. Could we talk a little more, Alexis, about how the balance of power uh, could be shifting? Uh, earlier, we our, our previous guest said that talking about a troop, a U.S. troop, a drawdown or reduction in South Korea is pre, is uh, premature. But I believe the New York Times reported that the Trump administration asked the Pentagon to draw up plans of what this would look like if South Korea were to lose that uh, safety net, so to speak. These U.S. troops that have been there for years. Um, what does that mean in terms of how they would feel? and deal with outside threats being China and uh, Japan? That's an excellent question. And I think, you know, I mean, several things are at play. President Trump, when he was campaigning, wanted to, made clear he wanted to reduce the number of U.S. troops in both Japan and South Korea uh, for financial reasons. That's sort of a non-starter because, in fact, the host nations do pay the bulk of U.S. troop presence in both Japan and South Korea. Strategically, things have shifted so much since these alliances went into play because the, you know, the, just the very existence of Guam uh, you know, we are not talking about U.S. troops from the South Korean peninsula stationed in South Korea doing the the first strike. We are talking about uh, B-1 bombers from Guam doing the first strike. The, st the troops stationed in South Korea are support troops. They would obviously become frontline troops in the event of a contingency. But what's important to bear in mind is this is, you know, the, the reason bloody nose or first strike is just a non-starter is the aftermath. Because again, it's not a winnable war per se for any side. But when the Rand Corporation in 2014 um, was commissioned by the U.S. Army to, to sort of draw up plans for what the first moments of war against North Korea would look like, uh, they estimated that 273,000 U.S. troops would be necessary just to hold down the fort in the first moments following an attack. We don't have that to spare. We have 1.3 million active duty troops that are overextended right now. And so the idea that these you know, imaginary 273,000 Americans would rush into a radiological disaster, because that's what it really is. What we're talking about, we don't know where the 40 to 100 nuclear sites are. Those have to be contained first. Um, and, and then there's the humanitarian crisis of millions of people on the march. Add the regional players into this, China has the capability of really shoring up its borders. So does Russia. China's already built uh, refugee, temporary refugee camps in Mongolia. Japan is singularly unprepared. And this became clear this year uh, when it was revealed that Japan doesn't even have a plan in place for boat refugees that might come. 
And so that's where we need to just shift the conversation away from this cataclysmic potential into one that, yes, recognizes that we're dealing with a regime that has not lived up to much of its bargain, that is a deeply unproductive international player, but that needs to be brought about into the international community in some peaceful way. Alexis, we just have a couple of minutes. I wanted to talk a little bit about the sentiments uh, sentiments around reunification of this peninsula. Is there a divide between the young and the old? Uh, again, between these two countries, relatives live on both sides. Sure. That's the, that's the million-dollar question because um, unification has always been an ideal except during the Korean War itself when it was a real policy, and that was to unify by military operations. Since 1953, it's been an abstract idea how best to do this. Um, until, the early, until the late 1970s, really, the Koreas looked remarkably similar. And so it was a political possibility to just sort of toss out under arguably two dictatorial regimes, North and South. Everything shifted in the 1980s in the wake of uh, violently achieved democratization in the South, but at the same time, a rapidly growing economy. And so what's happened now is you've got young South Koreans with no memory of any of this who don't want to give up what their parents have achieved, and they're not really thinking in terms of that. They're just thinking about themselves, and that's okay. But when the projected costs are in the low trillions of dollars for unification paid for by the South, South Koreans, young South Koreans age under 29, have one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world, 11.6. They don't want to add the burden of paying for North Korea to the mix. At the same time, they do not want war. So one final note that's really important to think about, President Moon at the moment has an 83% support rate among South Koreans for what he's doing vis-a-vis North Korea. He has a 47% support rate on economic matters because South Koreans need better economic futures. Alexis Dudden, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately, but it's always a pleasure to have you come in and uh, get your perspective on this uh, continuing uh, drama on the Korean peninsula. We'll get to see in a few months uh, where we go from here. But again, Alexis, professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Jean Amatruda. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.